Hey everyone, welcome to a very special edition of the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Strunelia. We're going to dive right into everything today. No sponsors, no nonsense. Today, I am releasing three excerpts from my upcoming book, Culture of Excellence, What the Yankees Can Teach Us About Leadership. I'm currently in the process of recording the audiobook, so this was an easy little switcheroo, or pretty easy, I should say, to get this all together for everyone here. But I picked three different excerpts from three different chapters in the book, and I hope that these three chapters alone can at least give you a better idea of what to expect throughout the entirety of the book when it comes out, hopefully sometime early in July. That's still the target. It looks like we're on track. Interior layout and design is happening as we speak, so keep an eye and an ear out for more information on all of that. But like I said, no nonsense into anything today. I want to dive right into these excerpts for you and give you a chance to sneak peek and preview my upcoming book. So, without further ado, let's play ball. Steinbrenner's Leadership Profile There used to be a wooden nameplate at Yankee Stadium atop George Steinbrenner's desk, engraved with the motto, Lead, Follow, or Get the Hell Out of the Way. This was a reference to United States Army General George Patton, a person Steinbrenner admired greatly so it's no surprise that Steinbrenner's leadership style closely resembled that of the former American military leader. Both Steinbrenner and Patton have at times been described as misinterpreted. What's not misunderstood is that Steinbrenner was a hard-nosed businessman, impulsive and demanding, and manic, fiercely competitive, and frequently guilty of outrageous behavior. In public, he could be a tyrant and a bully. The mad shipbuilder, as he was known, was obsessive, unforgiving, and hands-on during his reign as Yankees owner. Former Yankees shortstop Tony Kubek, at the time a broadcaster, complained in a 1978 op-ed to the Fort Lauderdale News that Steinbrenner manipulates people and makes players fear for their jobs. Obviously, Steinbrenner's behavior is not quite what one thinks of when they envision a leader, at least not an effective one. Steinbrenner's first term, 1973-1990, to as commander-in-chief, would accurately reflect his conduct. The Yankees, on and off the field, were in a constant state of chaos. Steinbrenner shuffled general managers 14 times in his first 17 seasons, in addition to 17 on-field managerial changes. It seemed continuity was impossible to achieve under the boss's watch. Regardless of the instability, George Steinbrenner had more energy than anyone in the Yankees organization, and he set the pace for the entire franchise. Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated wrote in his collaborative book with former Yankees manager Joe Torre, The Yankee Years, that, unlike most other owners who busied themselves with their business world interests and found pockets of time to check on their baseball team, Steinbrenner went to bed at night and woke up in the morning with the same thought. We have to win. He was ruthless in his goal. Steinbrenner always had a willingness to pour money back into the Yankees. He was never concerned, and maybe wrongfully so, about keeping a profit. The boss saw other franchises determined to lock down on budgets to increase profits or reduce loss. What's the biggest problem with this philosophy? It made these franchises far less competitive. 
Taking money from fans and making the prosperous richer would never be the primary motive as long as Steinbrenner was running the Yankees. Steinbrenner was committed to the Yankees, and for all his shortcomings, he was as competent as any owner in baseball history. How rare is the competent attribute? Liz Ryan, a former senior vice president of human resources and best-selling author of Reinvention Roadmap, Break the Rules to Get the Job You Want and Career You Deserve, says there are five signs of an incompetent leader. Of the five signs, Steinbrenner particularly defied three of them. 1. They have no vision. 2. They can't get off the dime, which means to take action. 3. They can't react to changing circumstances. With regard to those three signs, Steinbrenner's competency shines through. His vision when he bought the Yankees was to restore the franchise to prominence, which he did when they won the World Series in 1977 and 1978. Taking action was never a problem for Steinbrenner, and as owner, he was often too decisive. But he never sat back and waited for opportunities to create themselves. Finally, the boss reacted positively to the changing baseball landscape in the mid-1970s, as he was a free agency pioneer and struck a $486 million television deal with MSG in 1988, unheard of sums at the time. Steinbrenner was not perfect, and though he went through extreme highs and lows for his legacy to be remembered as it is today, the boss was not one to skimp on his responsibilities as a leader. Building Trust Joe Torre's philosophy as manager and leader of the Yankees followed a simple principle, trust. Tory is the son of an abusive father, and he had learned throughout his adult life how much the lack of trust between his father led to unwanted stress, yelling, screaming, and crying. Tory grew up to be a different type of man than his father. To build trust with his players, the manager made it clear from the onset that he would communicate with them first before anything reached the media. I thought it was my obligation to communicate with them so they would have the information right from me. Tory explained of his relationship with his players. My one point to the players was they were never going to read something that they hadn't heard from me, at least something significant, and that's part of the trust I try to create. In this approach, Tory's philosophies could not have been more different than that of someone like Billy Martin, who would use the media as a way to instigate players and show his superiority in the clubhouse. Tory wanted his players to look at one another in there or on the field and know that they had each other's backs. One of the more memorable moments of Torrey's tenure, testing the trust built between himself and his players, came on May 19, 1998, while playing in the Bronx versus the Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles were clinging to a slim lead late in the game when center fielder Bernie Williams drilled a home run off of pitcher Armando Benitez into the upper deck in right field, giving the Yankees a 7-5 lead. The Yankee Stadium crowd was buzzing, and on the next pitch, Benitez smoked first baseman Tino Martinez in the upper back with a fastball. As Martinez bent over in pain, both benches quickly cleared from their dugouts, with the Yankees' side led by one of their emotional leaders, left fielder Daryl Strawberry. The two teams met at the pitcher's mound with some shouting, pushing, and shoving. The Yankees players were incensed at Benitez for his immaturity and for his dangerous pitch to Martinez. Then, running in from the outfield bullpen, Yankees pitchers Jeff Nelson and Graham Lloyd got to Benitez through the pile of players on the mound and unloaded punches, starting off a brawl that lasted more than five minutes and almost became criminal after Strawberry attempted, but failed, to clock Benitez in the head near the top of the Orioles' dugout. 
During the incident, Martinez was visibly irate, and in the visitor's dugout, Tori pleaded desperately with Strawberry to go back to the Yankees' side before the veteran slugger caused more harm than had already happened. After the game, the Yankees remained unified, but they decided against future retaliation and more ugliness. The pitch by Benitez that hit Martinez was classless. The Orioles were embarrassed, and the Yankees' reaction was less than ideal. Torrey's team had shown him that they had each other's backs in the worst of times. Now it was time to get back to playing baseball. For much of the era, Torrey and his Yankees operated in a more measured tone than they did during that game versus Baltimore in 1998. That was because the manager never made the Yankees players feel as if any particular game was bigger than any other. Torrey always told his club that there was enough pressure in New York from fans in the media. They didn't need any added pressure from him. He was a manager I found easy to play for, said Torrey's first catcher and future successor, Joe Girardi. Not that I really found any managers hard to play for, but Joe had a calmness about him in a place that is not always so calm and it made you feel like everything was going to be okay if we stuck together. One of Torrey's starting pitchers during the 1990s was David Cohn. Cohn said of his manager, You could sense that he was going to be a calming influence. He had a lot of experience. A starting pitcher from 2001 to 2007, Mike Mussina added, I always thought the personality of the team fed off of Joe Torrey, and Joe was never too emotional either way, up or down. He trusted his players and trusted them to be ready. Torrey preferred to communicate in a low tone, and he did not want to challenge people as a fear tactic. But that didn't mean that he wouldn't confront people if it was necessary, and he strongly believed that having difficult conversations with people was a better route than sweeping issues under the rug. By ignoring something troublesome, Torrey explained, he would have been crossing a line on a crude trust. Even now, I may have trouble when I have to tell someone the truth if it's not a pleasant thing, but I won't lie to them. I can't do that. The only way you get commitment is through trust, and you've got to try and earn that trust. In her best-selling book, Dare to Lead, Brene Brown writes of trust, it is earned not through heroic deeds or even highly visible actions, but through paying attention, listening, and gestures of genuine care and connection. Tori was a master at all three of those leadership attributes, and he would let his players accept their hard-earned glory while being able to deflect them from the harsh even if sometimes warranted, criticism from the press and fans. Early in his tenure, Torrey showed trust in his players by not playing favorites. After dropping the first two games of the 1996 World Series, Torrey benched his starting first baseman, Tino Martinez, his starting third baseman, Wade Boggs, and his starting right fielder, Paul O'Neill, all of whom were struggling to produce at the plate. Cecil Fielder, Charlie Hayes, and Daryl Strawberry were inserted from the bench into those positions and made major contributions in the next four games of the series, all of which the Yankees won, with Hayes catching the final out of the final game. It didn't matter to the manager that Martinez, Boggs, and O'Neill were the primary guys during the regular season. They weren't producing on the biggest stage, and baseball is as much of a business as it is a game. Torrey's job was to win, but the decisions he made did not always sit well with his players. As a leader, some decisions will seem harsh no matter what the circumstances even if they are for the betterment of the team. Upon being released by the Yankees after the 1997 season, Fielder publicly ripped Torrey for what he viewed as mishandling of his playing time during that season. The reality was that Fielder's competition, Tino Martinez, was in the midst of a breakout season in 1997. 
Martinez hit 44 homers that year, made his first and only All-Star appearance with the Yankees, and finished second in the most valuable player voting. Torrey couldn't have taken Martinez out of the lineup even if he wanted to. Another harsh player decision by Torrey came a few years later. With two outs in the fifth inning of Game 4 of the 2000 World Series, Torrey removed starting pitcher Denny Nagel from the game with the New York Mets slugging catcher Mike Piazza due to hit. Piazza had crushed a long, two-run homer off of Nagel in his previous at-bat and cut the Yankees' lead to 3-2. Torrey didn't want to let Nagel face Piazza again, and clinging to a one-run lead, he pulled his starter. Even though Nagel was one out away from qualifying for a win, his first World Series win, should the Yankees hang on to the lead and win the game. The manager summoned out of the bullpen one of his most trusted assets, pitcher David Cohn, to handle Piazza in any threat the Mets would steal the game or the series. Cohn got Piazza to fly out to end the inning, and the Yankees won the World Series in five games. But after his early hook in Game 4, Nagel didn't hide his annoyance with the decision by Torrey. I'm still disappointed, the pitcher said, because you're a competitor. You want to be in those situations, and I feel confident in my ability to get out of those kind of situations. But that's why the manager gets paid what he does, because he makes those decisions. Nagel couldn't have said it better. In the heat of the moment, it was Tory who was being paid to make the big, in-game decision. At times, players can feel superhero-like and misread a situation in the midst of competition. A manager is there to provide a more objective and calm perspective. And that's exactly how Tory usually operated. Tory was also keenly able to use a softer approach toward exercising trust. In 1998, Yankees second baseman Chuck Knobloch was struggling mightily after demanding a trade from the Minnesota Twins that got him sent to New York in a blockbuster deal. Before the trade, Knobloch was already a four-time All-Star, and he was considered around the league to be an above-average defender at second base, winning his first Gold Glove award in 1997. Now with the Yankees, prior to the All-Star break in 1998, Knobloch had already made 10 errors in the field. Compounding matters at the time was his father's struggle with Alzheimer's disease. Midway through the season, Knobloch asked to talk with his manager. In these type of situations, a person is lost. And what they're searching for may be an array of different elements, both professional and personal. A true leader will highlight success, in spite of everything that's dragging an individual down, and remind them of positive contributions they make. That's precisely what Torrey did for Knobloch. First, Torrey told his leadoff hitter that he had a high on-base percentage, he was extending at-bats and raising pitch counts for opposing pitchers, plus he was on a team setting a record pace for wins. Torrey also related to Knobloch, telling him of his own experience being traded to the St. Louis Cardinals from the Atlanta Braves prior to the 1969 season. In one chat, Torrey was able to validate Knobloch's importance to the Yankees as well as relate to his personal vulnerabilities of being traded and being expected to produce immediately. The approach worked. Knobloch would go on to make only three errors the rest of that season and hit the game-tying three-run home run in Game 1 of the World Series. Being unafraid to have difficult conversations Ryan Cashman was not afraid to stand up to the boss had the guts to recommend a franchise-altering culture change, and had the conviction to challenge his managers. He's also had to take hardline approaches with players, and no one example of this is more memorable than his free agent negotiations with Derek Jeter. In February of 2001, Jeter, 
coming off his fourth World Series championship as the starting shortstop for the Yankees, agreed to a contract extension of $189 million over the next 10 seasons. Had Jeter waited to reach free agency, he surely could have made more money on the open market. But at the time, staying a Yankee was his priority, as was winning his fifth World Series. In 2010, primed to reach free agency for the first time in his career, Jeter had long assumed the money he left on the table in 2001 would be made up in good faith during his next negotiations. He had seen the front office give away millions in cash to teammates over the years, as if dollars were dirt. Jeter was the captain of the Yankees, he helped them win five World Series championships, and he was well on his way to a Hall of Fame career. But a couple of factors worked against him during this round of negotiations. George Steinbrenner, one of Jeter's biggest allies, had passed away during the 2010 season. In addition, Jeter's on-field performance that season had produced many career lows and gave the Yankees executives pause. At age 36, would Jeter ever be as impactful or valuable as he had been for them to that point? It was a fair question for both parties to ponder. Jeter wanted top money, and Cashman wanted to pay him closer to what the baseball market perceived as fair value. Cashman offered Jeter a three-year contract for $51 million. Jeter was shocked and appalled at what he felt was a low-ball offer from his employer. The truth was, and Cashman was correct in this assessment, that no team in baseball would offer a 36-year-old shortstop coming off of one of his worst seasons anything close to the type of money the Yankees had. Good faith was being rewarded by the Yankees, even if Jeter refused to see it as such. With Jeter unwilling to budge on his expectations, Cashman dug in and did what all great executives need to do in a tense situation between a franchise player and the employer. He told Jeter and his agent, Casey Close, to go out in the open market and shop for a better deal. This move was a risk on Cashman's part. If there was a club daring enough to see Derek Jeter in any uniform but the Yankee pinstripes, then the two parties could have been headed for a messy divorce. But Close and his client shopped around, and they gloomily returned to the Yankees' executives with the discovery that no team was desperate enough to go above Cashman's offer. Even so, Cashman held to his initial bid. He didn't offer Jeter more money out of pity or even out of desperation as the negotiations began to messily play out in the public. Either Jeter took the money, or the shortstop would have to walk away from the Yankees. Ultimately, Jeter decided to take the deal and re-sign. In the end, the shortstop would play his remaining four seasons with the Yankees, finishing as the franchise's all-time leader in hits and games played. Cashman had preserved a key organizational relationship and managed it through the rocky moments of the negotiation. In doing so, he had raised his profile as one of the game's top executives, and in one of the first major moments for the Yankees since the death of George Steinbrenner, he had shown that he had the marvels to handle major responsibilities as a leader. And there you have it. That wraps it up for today's episode. Again, those were three excerpts from my upcoming book, Culture of Excellence, What the Yankees Can Teach Us About Leadership. So many more details will be coming throughout the month of June. But I hope you enjoyed this look behind the curtain into the writing and in what will eventually be the audiobook of the manuscript as well. So much to come with this, like I said, so much excitement. And thank you for 
listening to this podcast and supporting me throughout the podcast, the book, everything with the Talent 409 Leadership Academy. So extremely grateful for it all. We are back next week with the start of a monster month of guests as we have an extra Monday during the month of June. So we get four guests next month. So please stay tuned for all that is to come. Enjoy your Memorial Day. Stay safe, stay healthy. And until next time, take it easy.